Uh, I am really excited to have some conversations with you uh, surrounding. First, I'll I'll introduce you, if that's okay, and yeah. then um, then we'll dig in because I hopefully have some discussion points that I'm really looking forward to your answer. Uh, so, yeah, with I'm, me, oh, go ahead. I was just say I'm I'm looking forward to learning from you too because I <laughs> I know you have a lot of experience and I'm excited to to learn. Yeah, and I have. Uh, which I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about myself too, because what I really have niched myself down um, intentionally to helping people recover from porn addiction. And I know the word addiction, you know, it's kind of loaded, but I think you understand it. So yeah. I'm probably okay with it. And it wasn't a deliberate choice. It fell in my lap about five years ago. And in trying to help someone that I worked with and cared about, I had to dig in deep and it blew my mind, which I'd be fascinated with it from an intellectual standpoint, if I wasn't vested in it, you know how that goes. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, with the pieces are so complex and intricate and, you know, I think it, I believe it's going to be kind of the worst brain, uh, disease or, you know, dysregulated functioning moving into the future. And I'd love to know your take on that and kind of, you know, some of those ideas. Let me, let me introduce you and then we can go back and forth. Um, So with me today on our podcast with me today is Dr. Anna Lemke. Um, Her credentials are long and fascinating, and I am sure you'll be able to, I'm not going to go over them if you're okay. She's a psychiatrist and an author of Dopamine Nation. Um, I was so excited to read this book. It was, this is a true story. I was going to the mountains to spend the weekend with my three girlfriends, which girlfriends are not an easy concept for me. And my girlfriends know this. So it was like one of the first times really ever that, you know, I was going to have a girl's weekend. That concept doesn't even fully resonate with me. So I downloaded the book. It's about three and a half hours. I downloaded the book. And as I put it on, I immediately loved it. And it's going to be one of the discussion points. You know, you open up with a chapter on our masturbation machines. I literally couldn't believe it because I was hoping to learn more about dopamine and kind of connect some dots. But the opening with that chapter, I was so excited. So I get to the mountain house and I'm like, this book's amazing. <laughs> of course, like <laughs> my brain hurt by the time I get there. Cause I usually don't like listen to a book for the solid three and a half hours. I'll like, listen, listen to some music, but I'm like, yeah. couldn't stop. I just, yeah. I listened to it the whole way home, you know, and then I finished it. I devoured it. So uh, I had to talk with you <laughs> oh, about Thank you. Uh, some of the points. So uh, Anna is a psychiatrist, but this is what I was going to say in terms of, you know, your credentials, people can look you up. What I find, and this is my synopsis of it, is that you really are a whole person practitioner. And that's a rare thing to find in, um, in medicine and healthcare in general, and especially you know, kind of within the box of healthcare. Some people look outside the, the box, but in the box, it's even more rare to find. So that voice came through in your book. And yeah. I'm sure that was intentional. So that was another reason that I really loved it because especially with pornography addiction, you know, I approach it with no shame, no judgment that a person's brain has been completely hijacked. Good people with complex backgrounds that involve trauma, um, you know, complex routines and habits, maladaptive ones, unhealthy habits, but at the core, just people who have issues that need to be solved. Right, right. That's right. A problem like any other, we're all human, you know, and, and broken and flawed and messed the human up condition. And, yeah, right. <laughs> The human condition is a challenging one. Another reason I loved it, that's why I feel like you and I might be kindred spirits, is that I don't read any fiction. I probably read hundreds of nonfiction books mm-hmm. a year. So interesting. I read no fiction, but I devoured the Twilight books. <laughs> I'm not kidding. This is like... We so really when are you, sisters when from you, another mother. Yeah, when you mentioned that, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And my husband brought home like from Blockbuster, you know, if this tells you when 
from Blockbuster, he brought home the movie Twilight. And he's like, I think you should watch this. I think you're going to like it. And I'm like, vampire movie? You got to be kidding me. <laughs> so, of course, I watched the movie and I loved it. Okay. Then I, I don't read any of the books. I like, I don't read books like that at all. I read all of them back to back to back, too. So oh, I'm gosh, like, I can see funny. the appeal of the dopamine yeah. in Twilight yeah. also. And that was many moons ago. So if we can kind of open with the idea, like what compelled you to open your book with the chapter on our masturbation machines? Because it literally blew my doors off and I was so excited that you chose that. Can you dive into, I'm sure you had lots of choices. So yeah. what kind of brought yeah. that one? What made the, that rise to the, to the top? Well, you know, it was a very deliberate choice and one which my editors tried to talk me out of. I think. Uh-huh. <laughs> But I said, you know, no, I really, uh, so just for, for your listeners, uh, you know, I open with the story of a patient with a very severe sex addiction, a wonderful man, uh, uh, you know, a Stanford scientist um, who has given me permission to share his story anonymously, mm -hmm. um, very generous of him. He did mm -hmm. it to help others and he's helped a lot of people, I think, um, as a result. So I'm so grateful to him. Yeah, he is going to help. Just so from my standpoint, he's going to help probably millions of people into the future. Yeah. That's the power of a story. And yeah. that story resonates with me so hard because I hear so many people's stories that are so similar to that. Yeah. I know your yeah. average listener doesn't hear a story of a person who really has a compulsion to build a machine to help him masturbate, to be able to get maximal amount of stimulation to the average person. That seems like such, you know, an off idea to me. I hear versions of that daily. Right. And so I know that that his story moving into the next generation, especially if we don't stop where we're going with this, right. that that is going to just hit so hard with so many people. So I am so appreciative that yeah. he did let you share that story yeah. because the impact of that story is going to be huge. Well, thank you for that. Next time I talk to him, I will tell him that you said Please that. do. Please yeah, do. <laughs> thank you for that. Um, so yeah, basically, so he has a, he's a wonderful man, a kind man, a smart man, all those, mm -hmm. you know, great, great qualities, um, but developed a very severe sex addiction and ultimately built his own uh, masturbation machine. And I, I opened with that because I wanted to raise awareness about the growing problem of addiction generally in the world. Um, the ways in which our primitive brains are mismatched for this modern ecosystem where we're surrounded by all kinds of feel-good substances and behaviors. Mm. But in particular, I wanted to draw attention to the problem of sex addiction, the incredible shame around it, and to also to draw a parallel between his masturbation machine and the masturbation machines that we all have today in the form of our mm -hmm. smartphones, mm -hmm. in the form of our laptops, the, the mm -hmm. things that we now use as sort of auto erotic stimulation, auto, um, you know, learning devices, auto, um, you know, love attachments. I mm -hmm. mean, we're really all using machines now to meet so many of our basic human needs in ways that, you know, normally we would have had to go and connect with other people to get mm -hmm. those needs met. So I, and then of course, as, as you alluded to earlier, I talk about my own romance reading novel addiction mm -hmm. that started with the Twilight Saga and then pr progressed to Frank erotica, socially mm -hmm. sanctioned pornography for women. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just really wanting to make addiction, not this thing that other people experience, but rather something that we're really all vulnerable to. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a growing problem um, in large part because of the technology. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I love that because that's a really clear, um, you know, analogy that I, you know, I call it porn in your pocket, like, especially right. when I'm talking to people mm -hmm. and teenagers are so vulnerable because they're just growing up with that where now, you know, adults are, are finding it and kind of getting hooked on it now, but teen, teen brains and, yeah. and child brain, you know, kid brains are, are being conditioned to, you know, I also have six children. I don't know if you know that about me know so, that. so I okay. approach <laughs> I approach this also uh, five of them are teenagers so like I'm dealing with this stuff personally on a day-to-day -day yeah. basis in terms yeah. of teaching them to balance their electronic use 
in a healthy way, which is very difficult when their brains just want to go back to it, you know, texting their friends all the time. And actually with all my children, they actually use devices and electronics in five completely different ways which is pretty interesting. So the way that I have to approach, you know, one's always on the phone, one's always uh, on video, you know, so it's kind of like balanced in a different way. But going back to that's what their brains have been conditioned to look for that dopamine response. So, you know, helping them to be able to balance that. And I don't necessarily have that. It's funny, because I probably have the information seeking, if anything, like using, you know, Google to look things up. I'm I'm my own worst (laughs) enemy. (laughs) Right. Where I'm like, guess what I learned today? <laughs> guess what Google taught me today? Um, so, you know, just that the pull back to it. So, right. uh, you know, I'm really appreciative that you opened with mass, with the masturbation machine because I, I assumed and you just confirmed, which I think is interesting that your editors weren't probably thrilled yeah, because right. a lot of people don't know about that. And in all honesty, I've been working in the sex addiction field now for five years. I I, my background is varied. I have a few, a bunch of different degrees. So I call myself a cognitive neuroscientist Mm -hmm. and that's true, but it's a culmination of different degrees. But then I became certified as a sex addiction recovery coach. Once I started digging into this information, I'm like, I I felt like I knew this secret Mm -hmm. that the whole rest of the world didn't know. And the way that this developed was I made one video that says absolutely nothing. And it's called heal your brain from pornography. I put it on YouTube. And a few months later, I get this notification in my email that 50,000 people saw that video. And of course, I'm like, if I would have known people were going to actually watch it, (laughs) I would have thought about what it said. I would have actually prepared it. It was really just me going bad for your brain, go do other things. So but now I'm you know, I know a lot about it. Plus I've been working with that first client of mine, who's so important to me being able to move him through a journey successfully. And, you know, like, like the person you talk about in the book, not an easy journey, lots of ups and downs, you know, backs and forths. But um, so, you know, it's really very important to me. And I started a nonprofit organization for a digital program for teenagers to help them to not get sucked in, in the first place. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so if we can um, move to, and I don't know if you'll even be able to talk about this, but discussion and just your focus, depending upon if you focus on. So what I focus on primarily is neurophysiology in terms of brain waves or, you know, the electrical energy that the brain produces in the YouTube videos. I've now made hundreds of them, by the Mm -hmm. way. I have hundreds Mm -hmm. of YouTube videos trying to help people understand this. And every video at the end, I give them a brain tip strategy based upon teaching them how their brain works in regard to electrical energy use, how it kind of is related to the cascade of neurochemicals, how then it produces the states that they experience. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, you work with people who have anxiety, ADHD, you talk about that in the book. And that really is a product of so many things, but also including the way that the brain's using electrical energy in the case of anxiety, Mm -hmm. too fast, in the case of ADHD, too slow. Um, So I was hoping you could share with the listeners, because I have not really ever talked about this, kind of how that electrophysiology connects to the cascade of neurochemicals and dopamine in particular. And you Mm -hmm. talk about in the book with the pain pleasure kind of scales. I was hoping you could dig in a little on that. Sure. So I do think that understanding the neuroscience of addiction is a very helpful frame for understanding both how we become addicted and how to get out of that, whether it's addiction to pornography and compulsive masturbation or to chocolate cake or to social media or to cannabis or whatever it is. And one of the most important findings in the field of neuroscience in the last hundred years or so is that pleasure and pain are co-located. So the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain and they work like opposite sides of a balance. So imagine a beam on a central fulcrum. Mm -hmm. When we do something pleasurable, it tilts to the side of pleasure. When we experience something painful, it tilts to the side of pain. But one of the overarching rules governing this balance is that it wants to remain level. It doesn't wanna be tipped for very long to pleasure or pain. And our brains will work very hard to restore a level balance or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. So for example, 
If I eat a piece of chocolate, I get a little release of dopamine in my brain's reward pathway. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that is very important for the experience of pleasure, motivation, and reward. And the fundamental difference between things that are addictive and those that are not is that things that are addictive release a whole lot more dopamine and release it very quickly. In other words, they tilt that balance hard and fast to the side of pleasure. But as soon as my balance tilts, my brain will want to restore a level balance. And it does that by down-regulating my own endogenous dopamine transmission and dopamine production. But here's the really important point. It doesn't just bring dopamine levels back down to baseline tonic firing. It actually brings it below baseline. We enter this dopamine deficit state before we go back to baseline. So that means for every pleasure, there's a cost. And that cost is a form of pain. That's often experienced as the come down, the after effect, the hangover, or even more subtly, just that moment of wanting that feeling to keep going. Mm -hmm. One of the ways that I imagine this is to think about these little neuroadaptation gremlins. Neuroadaptation is the process of chemical re-regulation to bring us to homeostasis. They hop on the pain side of the balance in order to bring it level again, but they like it on the balance. So they stay on until I'm tipped an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That's the come down or the dopamine deficit state. And then they get off before homeostasis is restored. But here's again, the central point to understanding how we progress from recreational use to compulsive addictive use. With repeated exposure to the same or similar stimulus, that initial pleasurable response gets shorter and weaker, but that after response gets longer and stronger. That's how we're wired. So that with successive uses, eventually we change our baseline hedonic set point. We end up with so many gremlins on the pain side of the balance that they could fill this whole room. And then we're in that dopamine deficit state, which means when we get there, first of all, we need more of our drug and more potent forms to get the same effect. And when we're not using, we're we're walking around with a balance that's tilted to the side of pain, experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and intrusive thoughts of wanting to use. Now, if we wait long enough and abstain from our drug of choice, those gremlins eventually hop off and balance can be restored, but it can take months, weeks to months in some cases where people have been just bombarding their reward pathway with the same potent reinforcing drug or behavior. Yeah. Thank you for that. Cause that's a great explanation. Um, the way that I just, uh, <clears throat> people who have listened to me before the way that I have been talking about that for a long time is I talk about a pendulum effect. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the way that the speeds in the brain are used, it's the same type of idea is yeah. that, you know, if a pendulum speaks, swings this far out to the right in terms of the fast speed and that high, then Mm -hmm. it has to swing just as far Mm -hmm. back out to the left. And I don't talk about it staying out there in the left, but usually I continue on and I tell people that it's an AB, you know, effect that the A effect is you feel good in the moment. The B effect is that Mm -hmm. in your, in the world, when you go back into your life, that not only is there not enough dopamine there for you to have pleasure and joy. And I actually care more about, and I know you think the same way from what you wrote that, you know, we should be going for joy where there's not enough joy or pleasure there to keep people in the world. It creates disengagement for people with all addictions. Um, And that not only is there not enough dopamine, there's more cortisol because there's more of the stress hormone out Mm -hmm. there in the world. And the way that that plays out probably for all people with addictions. But when I talk to people who consume pornography is, you know, now they're at work and they can't muster up the energy to get any work done because there's not all this dopamine where if their brain was healthy, they'd be getting smaller amounts of dopamine enough in the small work that leads them towards the completion of a bigger project to keep them in their work. But fantasy, and hopefully you'll discuss this with me in a moment, fantasy enters in 
And so they have euphoric recall of the porn that they've consumed and they Mm -hmm. cannot get it out of their head. Mm -hmm. And it's the, I tell people it's a call for help for mood regulation Mm -hmm. and that, you know, it's when it comes to sex addiction, it's not about sex. It's about the dopamine, right? Like all most addictions, it's about going back and being able to get back to that state that feels good because they've conditioned their brain that the feeling good is in the screen Mm -hmm. and it's not in the world anymore. Mm-hmm. What's a major motivator for people that I work with is porn induced erectile dysfunction. Right. I don't know if you know the literature on that, mm-hmm. but erectile dysfunction in young men is on the significant rise as porn consumption is. And a lot of people sure. I work with are young and they have erectile dysfunction or they are no longer interested in right. actual sexual relations with right. actual human beings because right. the screen has all the dopamine for them. I also talk about it as it creates this Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde effect where, you know, their families or their partners don't know which version they're going to get the Mm -hmm. one that just got the dopamine hit or the one that needs it. And it creates anger and irritability and this up and down, back and forth, you know, people lose jobs, you know, Mm -hmm. addictions, heartbreaking. What, what I find to be the most challenging part of pornography is that it lives in isolation Yes. And, you know, a lot of addiction does, but other addictions that are substance related have other negative effects besides these more internalized ones Mm -hmm. that it's very difficult to link the health, the mental health and the physical health issues back to porn consumption. I know that blows people's minds when they hear me say like your porn use is what's making you feel anxious and increasing that anxiety, right? The reason you have general malaise and lack of motivation is because of porn consumption. So if we can kind of move towards and, and just to share my thoughts on this for a second, before I ask you to share yours is that actual sex with another human being. And I was hoping you would parse this out and I don't know if you'll know it or not, because I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but in the book, you have a chart, which I love. There's a chart and it's on page 50 for anybody listening. There is a chart that has listed chocolate, sex, Adderall, other things in there. Mm -hmm. And I always talk about in my videos that, you know, one thing you can do is eat dark chocolate with caramel and sea salt. Cause that's my go-to like dopamine Mm -hmm. hit, I guess. So I love to see chocolate there, but sex is listed. And a lot of people that I work with don't understand that sex with a human being is different than masturbation, Mm. which compulsive masturbation to Mm -hmm. fantasy, because most people don't masturbate to not, not anything, you know, Mm -hmm. fantasy based. Mm -hmm. And then masturbation with pornography consumption. And we know when people watch porn, it increases the amount of dopamine. It's a super normal stimulus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if in that chart, if you can help me think about, you know, Sex is here at 100% more Mm -hmm. dopamine than baseline. Where do you think masturbation and porn consumption would lie? And if you want to describe the chart a little bit better than I did, that might be helpful for the listener. But then if you could make some either hypotheses based upon what you know, or guesses, if not. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, that chart comes from, uh, you know, the scientific literature trying to parse out the addictiveness of different substances by putting a probe into a rat's brain and measuring how much dopamine levels go above baseline firing. So um, we all have a kind of a tonic level of dopamine firing all the time in our reward pathway. And what allows us to experience pleasure and pain is where there's a deviation um, from that baseline level above or below. And what they discovered was that when the rats ingested chocolate, and it was literally chocolate, that mm-hmm. they would get, there was an increase in baseline dopamine firing about 50 units above baseline. Mm-hmm. For, um, for sex, it was about 100 units above baseline. For nicotine, it was about 150 units above baseline. For cocaine, about 225 units above baseline, and for amphetamines, 1,000 units above baseline. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing to keep in mind that those are rats, and rats mm-hmm. are not humans. The other thing to keep in mind is that uh, is the, this important concept of drug of choice. 
So what's reinforcing for one person may not be reinforcing for another. And although we're there's a lot, we're all wired in basically the same way when it comes to this reward pathway, there are enough inter-individual differences that, you know, what is reinforcing for one person, sex and love, might not be the drug of choice for somebody else who might be more prone to use things like cocaine or alcohol or what have you. Um, you know, when I think about um, and of course, with orgasm, you know, what we get is a flood of neurotransmitters in the brain. It's kind of like just a huge sort of like rolling out, like letting the, the sta- you know, the, in the football stadium, letting the crowd just like fill, you know, the field. That's sort of what happens with uh, orgasm. There's just like a flooding of serotonin or epinephrine, dopamine, all of these really feel good um, neurotransmitters. And of course, because of the way that our brain adapts to any increase in dopamine firing by downregulating our own dopamine production and transmission, remember this balance, inevitably with repeated exposures, it's going to be less and less rewarding, which means we're going to need more of that drug or more potent forms over time to get the same effect. I think this is really important in my work with patients with pornography addiction, because by the time they come to see me, they're usually using very, let's say, deviant forms of pornography, not the kinds of images that they started out with, and not the images that are really even necessarily consistent with their values, which is often distressing to them. Mm-hmm. But the way to understand that is just simply the pleasure, pain, balance, gremlins, neuroadaptation, and tolerance. Over time, with repeated exposure to any stimulus that's intoxicating, we need more of the stimulus more frequency, more quantity, and more potent forms Mm -hmm. to overcome those gremlins who are adapting. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's a really important piece of like that pornography trajectory that many people experience. Because I think they they can come in feeling like, oh, you know, I have this really deviant mind or, you know, I think it adds to the shame or I, I look at these kinds of images and, you know, they feel badly about it. But if you understand it from the perspective of neuroscience and tolerance, which is ex- a, yeah exactly yeah. what I tell people for sure. Yeah. So, and getting to your point about euphoric recall. So this is really essential and also a very interesting from the perspective of what neuroscience has discovered. If you take a rat and again, you have a probe in its brain to measure dopamine levels and you, and the rat learns that it can press a lever for cocaine mm-hmm. and that, that the cocaine will then after a lever press be directly inserted intravenously into its brain or its body. Mm-hmm. Of course, we see a huge spike in dopamine after that rat has ingested uh, cocaine. But what's really fascinating is if the rat learns that after hearing a bell or seeing a light, the cocaine will be available with a lever press, Mm -hmm. what, what we see in the rat's brain is that just when they see the light, they get an increase in dopamine. Mm -hmm. So the light itself is a reward the reminder mm-hmm. or the trigger in the environment mm-hmm. for what is coming is itself rewarding. But here's the really key piece right after that light or that sound that allows the animal to know the reward is coming. Dopamine goes up, but then it actually goes back down below baseline. And remember mm-hmm. when dopamine is below baseline, that's craving. And then we're very motivated to go and get the actual drug. So I think it's essential for people to understand that when they're having euphoric recall, they're not only driving up dopamine levels, they're actually driving down dopamine levels. They're getting then into this state of physiologic craving, which is incredibly difficult to resist. Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. is what then will get them to stop off at the massage parlor on the way home, even though they promised that they wouldn't do it or or whatever it is. Um, You know, in terms of like, potency of, I mean, I absolutely agree with you that, that sex addiction is not really even about sex. And it certainly, you know, can be completely orthogonal to our relationship with our loved one, you know, our Mm -hmm. sexual intimacy with our partner. I mean, the refractory piece, obviously will, you know, uh, erectile dysfunction will interfere, but we can Mm -hmm. love our partners and be Mm -hmm. in a very happy and loving marriage and still have a severe sex addiction because Mm -hmm. it's more about coping, self-soothing. And then ultimately it's about addiction, mm-hmm. getting into that vortex mm-hmm. of, you know, having your balance tilted to the, to the side of pain where you're now using it just to feel normal. Mm-hmm. And absolutely it drives anxiety. It creates depression. And that's, that's a key thing. So, you know, when I think about sort of 
sex addiction and pornography use and sort of its relative reward mm-hmm. to sex with a partner, it's very intricate and complicated because mm-hmm. what happens in the process of developing a sex addiction is that we, it's not just the pleasure pain balance at play. It's also the prefrontal cortex, which is the storytelling part of our brain. Mm-hmm. And we develop this very, these very elaborate fantasies and scenarios that become part of the addictive behavior itself. And it's kind of the buildup to it that then also, you know, is it becomes central to the reinforcing effects of the drug. So this is elaborate fantasy life that gets built up around it. And these are neural grooves that can be very deep, just like a wheelbarrow, you know, in soil, very hard to get out of. And, and, and importantly, what happens is because that fantasy life can be so reinforcing, probably releasing more dopamine all at once than sex with a partner mm-hmm. that essentially sex with a partner becomes not that enjoyable and yep. other more modest rewards become not that enjoyable. Right. And then we can be in this dangerous place where we're telling ourselves, well, I must need a new partner, or maybe I'm not really in love, or maybe I'm not really attracted to my partner. When in fact, it may be that none of that is true. But what's happened is we've changed our reward set point mm-hmm. so that we are now in a chronic dopamine deficit state mm-hmm. such that really everything else seems impoverished and our focus narrows to just this one single type mm-hmm. of reward. Do you so think porn and masturbation would be higher than the thousand percent? Or do you think just the baseline is set so low that it's like in from what I know about it? So this is the interesting thing about, and again, I if you're not involved in it, it's interesting. If you are suffering from a porn addiction, it's devastating. So right. uh, is that we know from the science that porn addictions start at the age of eight, not mm-hmm. at the age of, you know, in, in your teens and twenties, like alcohol and drug addiction tends to, there's generally a trauma or family dysfunction piece to it. So at least in classic pornography addiction opposed to contemporary, which is kind of a distinction that's being made. Now the average age of first porn exposure is eight and 70% of males between the ages of 18 and 34 consume pornography regularly. So by the time they're 18, they've been watching porn. And, you know, all the people I talk to tell me I've been watching it since weekly, daily, masturbating since the age of 10. So the addictive processes start so much earlier. And what the science shows is that the earlier a brain is impacted by these neural mechanisms being changed and the gremlins entering the building is that those neural pathways and those grooves are really being dug consistently and frequently intensity increases much earlier than it would for other types of addictions. This is what I fear the the danger is for the new generation. Mm. And that what happens is then, so like I, I'm thinking of that baseline that, that we were talking about, you know, in the world, your baseline for dopamine is just lower because your brain's conditioned to go back into the screen consistently and frequently with these high levels of intensity, but the intensity that they get in the screen could be at the level of that dopamine spike that is, you know, at the thousand percent more or the 2000% more, we can't really measure that in rats, I guess. And that's why I was interested to know, I know that a lot of times it's rat studies, um, but just the impact and what people that I work with tell me too, is that orgasm from sex is in the brain is nothing like the brain response. People can feel it in their brain, the dopamine release. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. dopamine rush in their brain is Mm -hmm. a thousand percent Mm -hmm. more than it is than when they're with a partner. Mm -hmm. But again, like it started when they were eight, long before they had a partner. So that those brain Mm -hmm. mechanisms have been in play. And so that rush is so much bigger. And then, you know, thinking about the intensity and you're totally right, moral incongruence is one of the factors in the science that shows that could be a motivating factor to help people if they're not feeling all the shame to be able to break that shame cycle of porn consumption and realize as the intensity increases that that this is something that they don't want to be watching, but recognizing 
that this is something I have to watch because that's where they're getting the rush now. The other stuff wasn't working, even though it's, it's a motivating factor. It's not always a factor that helps them to be able to escape the need for that, for that rush. Um, so I, I just didn't know if you had any sense of like, if you thought, and I guess you probably can't, can't know that if we're measuring it on rats, you know, to me, it's like that where the brain is at with, and you're totally right. The fantasy that builds up in terms of triggers, people are triggering themselves because they, it's, it's an internalized drug. So they trigger themselves to get that rush of, I call it a dopamine drip, just to try to make it easy for people to understand, to get that dopamine drip. And then you're totally right. If they don't follow through on it, then it goes low. And then the way that I talk about it is people are looking for the dopamine deluge, that flood of dopamine that they get by allowing themselves to be triggered. And when I help people, I tell them they have a, a three second window from the minute that they start to have the fantasy. I call it a pivot plan. They have to pivot. And you talk about this in your book. I really love that too. I tell them run, don't walk and change your mental and physical space. When I read your book too, it's everything in it is what I tell people to do. So it just confirmed because you know how that goes too. Like, I'm like, I really hope this book doesn't tell me all this stuff I don't know. And I'm going to have to change my, <laughs> my framework on this. And page after page, I'm like, I tell people to do that. I tell people that. Yeah, and everything good. you tell people is what I tell people in different language. Mm. But I think, you know, that's why I think the danger of porn consumption is, I believe it's at a 2000% level. Mm. And it is just like taking the brain over because these addictive mechanisms have started so early mm. because they can hide in isolation for most mm -hmm. people. Most people who struggle with porn addiction, no one in their world knows. Mm -hmm. And which is different than, you know, if you have a heroin addiction, it's, it's written on you a little bit. If you have an alcohol addiction, it's written well, on you a little bit. Well, I'm, I'm not so sure. So, I mean, I, I see people with for, all different for some types. people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I see people mm -hmm. with all different types of addiction mm -hmm. and I think, um, you know, pornography is, is devastating. And I think in the, in this day and age, shame associated with pornography may actually be worse than shame associated with other addictions. But I, I will say that, um, you know, the, the sort of natural history of pornography addiction is, is very similar to other addictions. I don't see a big distinction between them in terms of, you know, the, the patient population I've seen over the last 20 plus years. And I do think, again, we just have to keep in mind inter-individual variability. There it's are really what, really what I meant by that is that there's more physical symptoms that come along with alcohol misuse. You know, a lot of mm -hmm. people, it's easier for other people to be able to see that you know, like a good friend of mine is in recovery from alcohol. And, and when he tells his story, I really like the way that he said it is his, you know, kind of his rock bottom day was after a wedding where, you know, his name's not uh, Jim Smith. But the, the point is that on the next day, he's like, yeah, Smith has a problem. Everybody at the wedding said Smith has a problem. <laughs> and actually, I work with people who like their behaviors are so are changed. And I actually told the story about this where I recently saw someone and actually a few of my friends have now they kind of have porn radar people who might be struggling with porn because they can't help but talk about it because it's on their minds all the time. And, and they're kind of have more anger and then they're talking about sexual things all the time. So to me, that's kind of like an outward symptom of someone who might be struggling with porn that they're constantly thinking about it. So they constantly make comments about it. But what I meant was other addictions, there might be more physical symptoms that might help other people in their world see that they're struggling so that they can get help where when people consume pornography, it's in isolation. It doesn't have a lot of physical symptoms. The health symptoms and the mental health symptoms creep in very slowly over time. Mm. So it's very difficult even for the person to, and I know addiction is just difficult for people to, to put their thumb on where they're at in, in the, you know, escalation of it. That's really what I meant though. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess, again, I would push back a little bit on that just because I think, you know, I, I see the same spectrum in other addictions as well. Some people who it's obvious they have a problem and other people mm -hmm. you would never know. These are mm -hmm. high functioning people mm -hmm. they use in secret, they use in isolation. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Um, They appear to have minimal physical consequences. Mm -hmm. Um, Likewise, even with pornography addiction, I I would just say it's a spectrum. There are people who very quickly progress to devastating consequences, Mm -hmm. trouble with the law. We Mm -hmm. talked about erectile dysfunction. That's an obvious health consequence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then there are other people who are addicted who will go on for decades and be able to function, you know, appear to function in their lives Mm -hmm. and appear to have minimal consequences. So I just think it's a, it's a spectrum disorder, um, you know, no matter what the, everything is is, right. (laughs) Yeah. You know, everything exists on a continuum. Um, Okay. So I just, I'm looking at my notes for a couple other things that we haven't talked about. Do you have any suggestions for people in terms of talking about that sexual fantasy that can kind of trigger them back into this, you know, pain, pleasure cycle of addiction, any idea. And I have a few strategies that I share with people, but I'm always looking for fantasy is one of the trickiest things. People will tell me I haven't watched porn in 272 days, but I cannot conquer the fantasy thoughts that pop in. Any thoughts on that one for people? Well, I mean, I'm excited to hear the tricks that you use. I do talk about this with patients and I do ask them to consider, especially when the goal is abstinence and not just abstain from orgasm, um, but also to abstain from fantasy for that period of time. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I prescribe to patients, no matter what their drug that they're trying to recover from, or even if it's just compulsive overconsumption and, and not addiction per se, is to engage in what I call radical honesty. This is telling the truth about things large and small. Um, and I, I have a whole chapter on it because I really think that, you know, being totally truthful about what we're doing and when we're doing it is not just a way to overcome our addictions, but it also fosters human intimacy. You know, we think mm-hmm. by disclosing our warts that people will go running, but in fact, they feel drawn to us because Mm -hmm. they recognize themselves, you know, in our own brokenness. Mm -hmm. Um, The telling the truth may well upregulate precortical function, um, which is our sort of delayed gratification, uh, future planning part of the brain. And that may help us manage our impulses around desire. Truth telling is probably contagious and also potentially preventive. So, um, when we're in an you know, environment where people value truth-telling, mm-hmm. it's a way to not just help ourselves uh, with our compulsive overconsumption, but also spreads you know, almost like a contagion phenomenon to our children and Definitely. people around us. I love that chapter. That was one of my favorite chapters because I try to practice radical honesty with discernment. You know how that goes. Yeah. And in the chapter, you were kind of talking about how you had stolen your children's you know, candy and then then didn't fess up to it and then ended right. up fessing up to it. And with so many kids, I, I teach people about in the program that I offer and on YouTube, the videos, I try to encourage people to get on purpose in their work so they can find dopamine there in their relationships and in their hobbies, because then now they're living a balanced life of joy and truth telling in your relationships is what builds honesty, but I have to practice it on a daily basis too. And trying to figure out how to do that, you know, at kids of different ages and levels, the truth that you tell somebody, that's the discernment pieces, you know, um, but it is contagious. And I think it's so cool. Yeah. What I was going to say too, is I also teach people about your programming from the past. So, you know, in my family, nobody, I, I grew up in a family uh, that won't shock you of six children, three boys and three girls, which is what I have. My husband grew up in a family of three boys and three girls, Wow! uh, recreating my family dysfunction without even knowing it until I Mm -hmm. learned better. But uh, now I'm using it as, you know, what I grew up in, what that looked like, what I can make my family look like, which is not the same as the family I grew up in, not Mm -hmm. the same as the one my husband grew up in and telling the truth and being vulnerable, apologizing to the kids when I behave in a way that thankfully doesn't happen that much these days. But, you know, back in the day when I was transitioning, you know, I'd yell at them. I don't yell at them at all anymore. But back in the day when I couldn't regulate my own anger as it's building, trying to raise five Mm -hmm. little kids, but I would go to them and say, I'm sorry that I yelled at you. That's not acceptable. Let's talk about this. So the cool thing is now, like if they do that, they can come to me and say, I'm sorry I snapped at you. I was feeling this way. And really need to see it, you know, play out in 
the work that I put in a couple of years ago, and I still do, but, you know, seeing it play out on a moment by moment basis in terms of changing the programming that my children have, because I've changed my own programming through truth telling and my family doesn't, it's, they, they just can't handle my family of origin can't handle uncomfortable feelings. Mm -hmm. So when you tell the truth, you have to move towards discomfort and engage it, which is the way out of addiction. When you engage with Mm -hmm. the world and, you know, I always tell people you have to get uncomfortable. You have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable when you have that feeling within you and you think it's going to create conflict, being able to move towards it, knowing that there's rupture and repair. And when the rupture happens, things will be worse for a little while. When the repair happens, your relationship can be better than ever. And so my husband and I practice that, which is you know not a, not a perfect, but I love the chapter on radical honesty because I know how hard it is to do. I know how difficult, but I also know every single time I do it, I challenge myself to do it. It always takes courage and, you know, courage only exists in the face of fear. So when I feel that fear inside of me and I muster up the courage to move towards people and actually my best friend Chanel, I tell the story about her too, where when I first met her, there was this thing that happened, which is probably another reason I don't like hanging out with women because it was more of like drama being made in my new neighborhood that dragged me right into the middle of it. And I didn't know anybody. I didn't belong in the middle of it. And Chanel was kind of centered around it. I called her very uncomfortably because it's a new friend that I'm kind of excited to have a new friend. I call her. I'm like, this thing just happened. And she, in that moment, you know, she's like, I will take care of this. She marched over to the woman's house who was creating the drama and told her I had nothing to do with it and do not bring me into any of it. And that woman was suffering her own situation, which is why she brought me into it. But that really cool moment between Chanel and I, where I had the courage, instead of just going, forget her, she she created this junk for me. I, and I can still remember, I pulled my car over. I can remember like my heart racing and thinking, I can't believe I'm calling this new friend and telling her, I do not appreciate this thing that just happened, but I did it. And then I'm sure her heart was racing when she marched over to this woman's house, but that was, you know, almost 10 years ago. And we've continued to do that with each other mm, Nice. since then. So like, you know, you can do it with your friends, you can do it with your partner, mm-hmm. you can do it with your children. And when you do, the way I talk about it is, in being vulnerable, you become invulnerable. Mm. Nothing that can take you down if there's nothing that you're hiding and mm-hmm. and that exists in isolation. So I really love that. Um, just to tell you quickly, and we'll see what you uh, think of this idea. The two strategies that I tell people for fantasy is one is to you know if they're having euphoric recall about scenes from pornography that they've consumed, and we're trying to get rid of those behaviors that one thing they can do is, you know, that is a call for mood regulation. We know at the, at the core, you know, the person's looking for the dopamine to get them back to, to feeling good instead of bad. So being able to, and also when your brain goes to fantasy, your brain slows down, the electrophysiology slows down out of anxiety mode. And it's, it's wanting to go into creative mode, which is much slower. So it's looking to be slowed down and to feel good. And so swapping out unhealthy fantasy for healthy fantasy is one strategy that I encourage people to do because it's your brain saying, I don't want to do the thing I'm doing right now. I need a break. And so it's used to going to sex because that's where it's gone for five, 10, you know, for some people, 60 years, you know, so, so this way they can swap out healthy fantasy and fantasize about the vacation they're going to be taking. And especially if they're on purpose in their work their relationships and hobbies, they have things to fantasize, fantasize about, you know, the mountain trip or fantasize about the dinner you're going to make or, you know, something like that. And then an even better strategy, because what we're trying to do is trick the brain with the dopamine that's already been released, trick it to think it's associated with the fantasy of your life, not the fantasy of sex. Mm -hmm. And then another strategy, a better one, I think, is to pull your brain out of fantasy and bring it back into your actual present Mm -hmm. and teach yourself to enjoy the sky or the scenery or put beautiful paintings in your in your office or a picture of your family next to your Mm -hmm. desk so that you can pull your brain out of fantasy and trick your brain into associating that initial dopamine drip with your real life. 
And so tricking it into that connection so that you can come back into your life and now teach your brain. My life is where dopamine is, not the screen. Mm -hmm. What do you think about those two strategies? (laughs) Yeah, I think those are great. I think those are both, you know, really wonderful messages. And the, the second one is what I talk about at the end of Dopamine Nation that in many ways, you know, addiction is this kind of fleeing from the present moment and fleeing from our lives, the lives that we've been given. And so it makes sense that the, the antidote to addiction is instead to immerse ourselves in the lives that we've been given and try to be present in a way that's passionate. Because I think a lot of people with addiction need, you know, that kind of intensity. Um, there are people who are kind of wired for intensity and mm-hmm. wired for, for passion and challenge and friction Mm -hmm. And, you know, the substance or the behavior becomes a way to find that. But another way to find that again is to immerse ourselves in our lives, in the present moment, in whatever we're doing and and invest in that. Yeah. Um, And create it. Like I tell people, think about your life. What pieces aren't working for you? Change them. You know, our, our personas are just identities. They're constructs that can be changed and you can intentionally change them to be the version of you that feels the best. And I think you're totally right about anxiety and excitement showing up in very similar ways in the nervous system. And my one daughter who would probably kill me if she knew I was talking about her, who's 16, she really loves the good drama. Mm. And so I keep telling her, you have to create your own excitement. (laughs) And actually Glennon Doyle talked about this in her most recent book. I don't know if you read her where she talked about getting her daughter who has anxiety into soccer. And she, of course she's married to Abby Wambach. So, you know, getting her into soccer so that she has that excitement, she has Mm -hmm. the challenge, she has the drama on the field, instead of having to create that in your brain and looking for it in negative ways out in the world. And that's what I encourage people to do, create this life. Uh, I just took motorcycle lessons. So like, you know, to get that intensity, which I wasn't wasn't too bad, you know, like getting that intensity (laughs) in a way that feels good to you, that can show up as anxiety plus excitement. Uh, I know you have daughters. I don't know if they ever watch My Little Pony. Um, My Little Pony talks about it as nervous sighted. And so that feeling of nervousness and excitement. And uh, my daughter, who's 11, my youngest is 11. She rides horses and she, uh, every weekend we go on Saturday to the barn. She always says when on our way there, how she's got that feeling. But that feeling is her being on purpose in the hobby that she loves. She's nervous. And I said to her a couple of weeks ago, are you more nervous or are you more excited? Like which piece of nervous sighted do you have more of? Of course, I was hoping it was excited. Mm-hmm. And she said, it's excited, but she still feels nervousness. That's perfect. She looks forward to going every weekend. Like, you know, she's looking forward to it on Tuesday because it creates those feelings. So I think you're totally right about that friction point in that anxiety. And we can create that in our lives. People forget that they settle into complacency. And then as addiction takes hold, it's even harder to go out of your way to be able to create that. But I believe that is the way, you know, the way through is out, which Mm -hmm. is why it's so Mm -hmm. challenging. Um, Okay. Well, I'm cognizant of your time. Thank you so much for joining me today. Do you have any other, um, any tidbits or anything else you'd like to add kind of on, on the subject before we wrap up? Not really. Thank you for having me. It's been a a great discussion. I'm glad I got to learn about your work and learn from the kind of strategies that that you do. And thank you for your work. I think, um, you know, people, I'm so glad that people have professionals that they can go to for help with this problem. Yeah. And I think a cool thing about, you know, this has become a mission to me where it fell in my lap and, you know, it's not even work. It is more like I, you know, I'm compelled to get up every day to do it, to help people. And I think people in this space, that is how it goes for most of them where, you know, they're so excited to be able to help people and see the need for it. So um, thankfully there's more people who are seeing the dangers of pornography consumption. And I think your book, I am so appreciative for you to write that. I was, like I told you before, I was so excited to read it before it came out. And, you know, I've, I've already told so many people And I'm sure it's taking off because it deserves to. So thank you very much again. Thanks. I appreciate your time. All right. Thanks again. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. It's nice to meet you. Yeah. Nice to meet you too. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye.